and the year thing we're going to talk a little bit about because it has to do with our lesson actually tonight. Um, but yeah, the way we do numbers and stuff, you know, when a kid turns one years old, he's actually starting his second year, you know, but we call it one years old. And throughout that whole time till his second birthday, if someone asks him how old you are, he'll say, I'm one. Uh, well, actually, his parents will say that because he probably won't know what to say. But, yeah. but uh, anyway, we're going to come back to that uh, in a moment. But uh, tonight's lesson has to do with uh, Bible contradictions, or we might say more accurately, alleged Bible contradictions. And uh, this is an area of study that's really uh, helpful to us when we understand it. And of course, uh, as I was studying this and as I was giving this lesson, you know, there used to be a bunch of books back in the day. We used to have like uh, alleged contradictions of the Bible, and there were some other ones like that. And I looked at my library when I was assigned this topic, and I do have one that's uh, published in 1992. Um, But I thought, you know, today, nowadays, it's like people seemingly, a lot of people anyway in the world, they could care less about the Bible, you know, because they've, I guess, we just, in our society, our culture, it's just, you know, that's one way, this is another way, that's your deal, this is my deal, can't tell me, you know, what to do, I won't tell you what to do, we'll just leave, leave it here and do our own thing. And uh, sometimes they try, you know, religious people, and of course I was blessed uh, this week or this summer to go on uh, two weeks in Ghana, West Africa, and then a week in Peru. And when you study with people, you get all kinds of responses about the Bible, about religion, and even religious people uh, will try to explain away the Bible. And of course, uh, atheists are the ones least famous for pointing out so-called contradictions in the Bible. As a matter of fact, shortly after I was assigned the lesson, I just went on Google and typed in Bible contradictions. And the first site that came up was an atheist site. And uh, I started reading, and this was serious stuff, and I thought, that is really, really super lame, Uh, the kind of things that they're talking about. And really, and we'll show some of these in just a moment, but most of it has to do with just a total misunderstanding of the context of the Bible. You know, the patriarchal age, the difference in the covenants, and so forth. That goes a long way in in resolving this issue. But to also show that the issue is real and closer to home, I spent some time earlier in the summer, uh, though I haven't heard from this individual in a little bit of time, but a faithful Christian even did some preaching, and uh, things seemed to be going right, but somehow, some way, he got um, some kind of information that he thought was really showing that the Bible is contradictory. And his hang-up, one of his hang-ups was Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where if you have your Bible, please turn there. I just want to point something out here by way of introduction. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse uh, 7, verse 14, excuse me, therefore the Lord himself, and I'm reading from the New King James Translation, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And this particular individual, he says, well, that means that, uh, and here, if you go back up to verse um, uh, 10, he's talking to Ahaz. And so he says, this means that Ahaz has to see that child being born of a virgin. So either there was two children born of a virgin, uh, or uh, the Bible is contradicting itself. And since we know there wasn't two people born of a virgin, it must be contradictory. But yet, uh, just a big game changer here, and I do have it on my phone right here. And if you go back up to verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the earth or in the height above. 
Uh, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, uh, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary me, or weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give, a, will give you a sign. But if you have the King James translation, and this is uh, really one of the strengths of the King James translations, notice verse 10. But the Lord, moreover, the Lord spake to Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. What is the thee in the King James translation? It's a singular pronoun. You singular. Uh, ask thee either in the height above or whatever. But Ahaz said, I will not, neither will I tempt the Lord. Verse 13, he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary me, but will you also weary God? Therefore the Lord himself uh, will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, etc. Uh, and actually, verse 13, what I want to point out, he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. And what is a ye in the King James translation? That's you, plural. Or y'all down south, that's right. Uh, and so when he gets to verse 14, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And the you here, it takes a, it's the same as the ye, it is plural. So he is not really talking just to Ahaz. And the individual I was telling you about that had a real problem with this, I, you know, kind of email, we kind of email back and forth and all that. And I like to email, you know, I like to, you know, bring my email discussions into simple true or false questions. And so I asked him some true or false questions about this, pointing out that it is plural. You can look in the Hebrew text, you can look at some of these translations like the King James. And so Isaiah 14 is not given to Ahaz only, but is given to the house of Israel, all the house of Israel, plural. And so one true or false I question, is it possible that Isaiah is speaking at least to somebody besides Ahaz, or even possible that he is not speaking to Ahaz at all, but to the house of Israel from this point until they cease to exist. And of course, the answer to that question is true. It is possible. And uh, if it's possible, then there is absolutely no contradiction there. And because the house of Israel, the house of David actually, lasted all the way until when? Well, actually, went into the captivity. They came out of the captivity. But that was God's house until Jesus died on the cross and did away with that, that system, fulfilled that system. And so uh, does the Bible contradict itself is really, really close to home, we might say. Well, tonight we're going to look at some things. And mainly what we're going to look at is principles uh, about how to deal with these so-called contradictions. And um, we will look at some of these as we go along, but this won't be a class about let's resolve this contradiction, let's resolve this apparent contradiction, and so forth. But it's going to give us some principles uh, by which we can, we can do this. All right, so uh, first of all, what is a contradiction? What is a true contradiction? Now, there are apparent contradictions, and uh, we actually have the logic class this semester and uh, George Beals will be teaching that on uh, Thursday mornings. And so if you're interested in that, it's not too late to come take that class. And you know George, so it's going to have some funniness to it. But anyway, probably unintentional, but funny, you know. 
But, uh, but in logic, there is a certain logical term called a contradiction. And a contradiction says that both statements cannot be true at the same time in the same manner. And so if neither statement can be true at the same time in the same way, then they contradict one another, okay? So one statement might be, you know, that car is white. Another statement might be, we started VBS at 7 p.m. Well, can those two statements be true at the same time? Absolutely. Now, they had nothing to do with one another, necessarily, but they don't contradict. Uh, and so, but when we look at this uh, as it applies to the subject tonight, a contradiction must involve the impossibility of those two being true. I mean, if, if, if they're true, they can't be true at the same time. And if I were to illustrate it with two sentences that do relate, if I say Brian is rich, wealthy, uh, Brian is poor. Now, those two statements appear to be a contradiction, but there's some other factors we have to take into consideration. In other words, are they talking about the same person or thing? You know, it might be there's two different Brian's. Anybody else in this audience named Brian? I don't know if there is or not. I don't think so. All right, but there might be two different Brian's. That might be what the writer's talking about. If it's two different Brian's, then it's not a contradiction, is it? Uh, also, we have to consider the uh, time reference. If it is the same Brian, is, is the is poor and is wealthy, are they at the same time? Or could it be he is you know, of course, we might use different verbs uh, there, but he was wealthy at one time, uh, but he's got grandbabies now, and he likes to spend money on them, and so he put himself in trouble, you know, but anyway, or something like that. Um, is it the same time? Well, if it's the same person, if it's the same time, then the third thing is, is it the same uh, sense in which the two are being used? In other words... I remember a church in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, or chapter 2 actually, they were poor but very rich. But he's talking about poor materially, but rich or wealthy spiritually. So again, if those aspects are different, then it's not a contradiction. But only if it's talking about the same person, the same time, the same sense of those words, would it be a contradiction? And so there's a lot of Bible statements that are like that. They seem to be contradictory, but they may not be talking about the same thing, the same person, the same time frame, or in the same sense. For example, and I read this on the internet a while back, and allegedly it was a true story, but just for the sake of this illustration, we'll assume it's true. Uh, one fellow said, a skeptic, he come, comes by and he says, I know the Bible is contradictory because, you know, the ark uh, that Noah built had all those animals, had that huge dimension, and even if it was made of balsa wood, it would have weighed tons to fit all that in those dimensions. But yet, I read in Joshua chapter 3 how the priests carried the ark over the Jordan River. So I know the Bible can't be true. Well, what's his problem? He's taking that word ark, and it means two different things, Noah's ark versus the ark of the covenant, but he's not studying that out. And this sound, it's, it is humorous, I think, but
But that atheist website I was telling you about at first, that's the kind of things they were doing. And I'm thinking, is that the best you got? <laughs> but uh, it's, a diff it's not the same thing. Uh, also, there must involve the same time reference. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and at the end of each day, he says, it is good, it is good. Well, the second day he did not, but the first day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day, uh, actually the third day, he said it was very good. He gave a double, uh, it is good, on the third day. And then he gave a double, it is good, on the sixth day. But the, the double, the second, it is good, he said, it is very good. After he made man and gave him the dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and every beast that creepeth upon the earth, he said, it is very good. And, uh, but yet, in Genesis 6, 6, it says it repented God and regretted. God regretted that he made man upon the earth because his thoughts and intents were evil continually. And so the atheists or the skeptics will say, aha, the Bible contradicts itself. It says God was pleased with this creation of man, but here it says he's not pleased. Well, what's the problem with that reasoning? I'm not talking about the same time frame. There was hundreds of years that passed between those two references Mankind had sinned, was driven out of the garden, and all kinds of stuff going on between all that. But yet, that's, that's what people do with these so-called contradictions. And then, uh, again, is it talking about the same sense? The same sense. You remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, uh, and when they asked John the Baptist, they asked him, Are you Elijah? In verse 121, he says, I am not. Are you the Christ? I am not, etc. And so there, John said, he is not Elijah. But yet, in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus says, Behold, this is Elijah. And so someone says, Well, ha, there's a contradiction. Well, what's the problem with that alleged contradiction? Elijah is being used in a different sense. Okay? Uh, he is Elijah in that he is the one that come to prepare the way that Elijah uh, did, but he is not the real, literal Elijah, but figuratively he is. But it's a different sense of the word. And so when people talk about the alleged Bible contradictions, these things must be taken into consideration. As you talk about the same, same person or thing, the same time reference, and the same sense of those words. And so unless all those are the same, it would definitely be a contradiction. But if those are different, then it's not a contradiction, even though it may appear so. And uh, one thing I want to point out, and I don't have the quote with me here, but, um, and of course it doesn't really have to be a quote to know this, but if there's at least any possibility that it's a different sense or a different person or a different time reference, if there's any, at least any possibility, a rational possibility, then it does not have to be, it is not a contradiction. Uh, but unfortunately, many people approach the Bible as if it's guilty until proven innocent. And by that I mean it's, it's, a, it's a fake document uh, made by humans unless you can prove that what it says is true. And I have no problem with proof. Remember, Paul did say in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things or test all things, hold fast to that which is good. 
And in 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that word, as I'm sure even in this Vacation Bible School, you've probably been reminded of that, but that word, um, be ready to give an answer, is the word apologia, same word we get apology or apologetics from, and it means to give a defense. And so I'm, I'm not at all questioning that we ought to give, be able to give it a defense of this, and we ought to be able to, to explain or to show why apparent contradictions are not really contradictions. Well, and so a real contradiction is going to involve same time or same thing, same time reference and all that. All right, now we do know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And uh, just this particular semester in class, we just uh, finished our first week. Um, but I brought this up in two of my classes. You know, the, the quote knowledge formula that I like to use all the time in all my classes, just about, except for maybe English grammar, which I don't teach that anymore, so that's good. Um, but if God exists, and if the Bible is the inspired word of God, and if the Bible teaches a certain thing to be true, then we know that that certain thing is true. And so for tonight, our formula is going to be, if God exists, and if the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then we know that the Bible does not contradict itself. For the Bible is an errant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. All right, and we know that God exists, and I won't go into all the details on that, but we have all the arguments and stuff, and you may have covered some of this stuff on this VBS. But the God of the Bible does exist. We do not even have to open a page in the Bible to know that a supreme, uncreated, uncaused cause must exist. Just by looking at nature, we can know that. Um, before we even open a page of the Bible, just rational, logical argumentation would prove that. Uh, but we do know that the Bible, that God does exist, and we know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And uh, we can just take... And in fact, I think David Steerson did a lesson on prophecy the other night. And that, that alone proves that this Bible was supernaturally authored. And uh, I understand that David uh, looked at some less popular or less um, maybe known about prophecies or less uh, prophecies we put much weight in, but yet they're nonetheless true. And one thing about prophecy, you know, there are prophecies made in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the Old Testament. There are prophecies made in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament. There are prophecies made in the New Testament fulfilled in the New Testament. And there are prophecies made in the New Testament that have yet to be fulfilled and those, only, those all surround the resurrection, the final resurrection, the coming of Christ, and those things right there. But prophecy is the way we know that the Bible is the Word of God because it's impossible to predict some of the things that God, in fact all the things really, but, you know, these, these prophecies were so remote in time, they could not be guesswork. Uh, they were detailed uh, so as to avoid vague generalizations. And there were definite fulfillments of these. And I know, uh, and I don't know if David covered this one or not, but, but the city of Tyre, the destruction of Tyre and Sidon, did he cover that? Good. That's good. I mean, that is, there's, there's no way out of that. There's no way Ezekiel could have said that. Uh, those different stages and all that. But all that stuff is, shows that the Bible is the Word of God. 
So if God authored this, and we know God is perfect in all his attributes, uh, no darkness in him at all, we know that this also is perfect, that is infallible, inerrant, and all of those things, okay? Because it is authored by God. Well, why then does a God-authored book seem to have contradictions? Now, again, I say seem to have because when we really analyze them, we find out that it does not. All right, well, one thing is, um, you know, only the autographs are inerrant. Now, what do we mean by an autograph when we talk about Bible stuff? When we talk about books of the Bible, all right, do we have any of the original documents, I mean, the, the, the one that Paul signed, you know, the, the book of Romans that Paul wrote, do we have that anywhere? No, we don't. And I think somebody, maybe Bruce talked about that, uh, how we got the Bible. But we can't go anywhere to any museum to show here's the original scroll that Paul wrote Romans on. Or Genesis through Revelation. But does that mean we don't know what that original scroll said? We do know what it said. Why? Because we have, now when I went to, first came to preaching school, it was 5,000 different pieces of evidence that, showed, that, that, that testified of an original New Testament document. Now these might be entire scrolls that were manuscript, that were copies, or they might be pieces of pottery that have scripture on them. Or they might be little parts of papyri that have scripture on them. And uh, you say, well, how does that prove anything? Well, where, where did they get that scripture to put on that piece of pottery? Where did they copy that, that manuscript? Where, where did the original come from? And these things were, were found, if you can imagine, you know, the Mediterranean world. We have the Mediterranean Sea and Palestine over here and Asia Minor up here and Egypt and and all that down here. Well, these things were discovered in different areas, but yet they say pretty much the same thing. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, and so it's kind of like this. What, what is the more powerful testimony? Me saying I did something, or 5,000 witnesses that saw me do something? Which has the more power, power in it? It's the 5,000 witnesses who saw me do something has more power in it. And that's what we have with the New Testament. Well, when I went to school in 1989 to 91, it was 5,000, but now it's over 6,000 pieces of evidence. And so the evidence just keeps piling up about this. Well, since we don't have originals, but we do have witnesses to the original, but those witnesses were copied by humans. And so we do have manuscripts, and, and one of the major areas of apparent contradiction is human error in transmitting the manuscripts. And uh, this, uh, before I even studied this, and this is a field of textual criticism, we won't spend a whole lot of time in it, but before I even studied that field, I knew all about it. Because uh, when I went to school of preaching, it was before computers, okay? Well, computers were just becoming a household item, uh, but they weren't in every household. I, got my, I graduated from school of preaching in 1991, got my first computer in 1992. But, uh, so I hand wrote all my notes at school, most of them. A few of my teachers had mercy and gave us a handout. Not many of them, but we had to write them by hand. And my wife was really into the school of preaching with me. And of course, uh, so I would take my handwritten notes 
And I would take them to her after school, and she would type them. I'm a typewriter. And, um, you know, I would make sure that I would circle things and color-coded things and put arrows, this goes over here and this goes over here. And I would do my best to make it easy for her. Um, and most times she'd do them that night. Sometimes she'd have to wait till the weekend or whatever. But, you know, I had two small kids and a couple dogs barking and stuff. So, you know, it was, it was a madhouse sometimes. But, but sometimes I'd get my type notes back and I'd say, what in the world? I know I didn't write that. And sure enough, I didn't. But in her copying, there's all kinds of these manuscript errors that they would make. For example, if you have a sheet of paper, and you can see it in Scripture all over the place, uh, and I'm, I'm going to copy this, this onto another piece of paper, and this line ends with the word Christ, and this line ends with the word Christ, and so I'm, when I'm copying this, I get to Christ, but then I turn around and get the kid out of the, out of the dog food or whatever. They were toddlers at that time, okay, crawling around. And so I turn around and get the kid out of the dog food, get everything straight there. And I go back. I see on my paper over here I left off on Christ. So I'm going to go back to Christ, but I accidentally go down to this Christ and start copying from there. And so I leave out a little section there. Well, that comes across in some manuscripts. Why, why for example, in some Bibles the verse is longer then in other Bibles, translations. Well, it's because there's a little error there. Now, how do we know, how do we know which one's the error? Well, we can go back, because remember, we got 6,000 pieces of, of evidence to compare it to, so we can go back and compare it to. Well, if I compare it to, you know, 50 manuscripts have it this way, and one has it another way. Well, that kind of tells me, well, maybe that one is an error. Of course, the age of the manuscript might have something to do with it. Well, because usually... Closer to the original is going to be more accurate. So it's kind of like if I were to whisper in her ear right here a certain statement, and she was to whisper to her husband, like, don't say me when we sing that song, okay? Okay. <laughs> but anyway, but anyway, so it's going to go all the way around, and by the time it comes to me, it might be different, right? Now, it's not going to be intentionally different because somebody might slip up along the way, and then someone else repeats that mistake, and it goes all the way around or whatever, but that's the same way copying scriptures can be. And so if I'm copying, you know, the book of Romans, I'm a scribe, and I'm copying the book of Romans, and, you know, early on in the first and second centuries, they're doing this in a, in a dark corner somewhere, because, remember, Christianity is illegal, and you can get put to death if they find out you're messing with it, you know. And so it's going to be done in a little corner some way, under candlelight or whatever, and so it's very easy... And some of my students, the number here tonight, though, that took my Greek class last year, and we did textual criticism, we had a whole class on that, where they actually had to compare manuscripts in Greek and handwritten and all that stuff, and you can see the errors in them, um, from the standard anyway. But, you know, so a manuscript closer to the original is going to likely be more accurate. And so if we have a thousand over here that read differently after the printing press is, is invented, and they can print in mass those errors, okay, you know, the one over here is going to be more valuable. It's going to be more closer to the original. And so we do have manuscript errors and copying errors in some, in some so-called uh, contradictions. All right? And so manuscripts were written by humans. So it's a transmission problem, not an original God problem. Okay? And so when God inspired the writers to write the original manuscripts, they were perfect without error. 
But when you get humans to copy it, uninspired humans copying it to pass it on, then you have potential for error. All right? Uh, and then notice also um, translations are based upon manuscripts. You know, every translation has a manuscript behind it, okay? And so you have differences in translations, uh, but again, that's not a problem with inspiration. It's a problem with the transmission of the scriptures, the copying of the scriptures uh, on down to us. All right, so uh, we don't have autographs. We only have manuscript evidence. But again, uh, yeah, in a manuscript variant, when one manuscript reads different from another manuscript, and that's true, nobody can deny that, rationally deny that, because you can go to museums, you can see this manuscript reads this way, this manuscript reads a little bit different. So the question is, why are those differences there? And there's a whole bunch of criteria and stuff you can go through, but uh, we'll save that for another lesson. But anyway, all right, uh, secondly underneath this, the Bible, yes, the original is inspired, but notice also uh, the Bible contains all kinds of genres of literature, okay? And we recognize this in human writing all over the place, but for some reason people get bent out of shape when it comes to the Bible. There's historical narrative, uh, there is poetry, there are parables, uh, you know, stories right alongside. Uh, Galatians 4.24, when Paul is talking about the bondwoman and the free woman, he says it's an allegory. And uh, allegory is not to be interpreted the same way as a historical narrative is. And we know this uh, in our everyday lives. Uh, the Bible is full of metaphor. Uh, for example, if you look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 and verse 2, in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2, and this, these are types of figurative language, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 2. Uh, notice here, Paul says, uh, talking about the Corinthians here, uh, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all, all men. Well, he's calling the church an epistle. Well, is that to be taken literally? No, it's just a figure of speech. It's a metaphor. Uh, simile, uh, like as, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like as, which is also introducing a parable there. Uh, James 1, verse 6, he says he, has, he is as the wind driven by the sea or whatever. But whenever you use the word as or like, you're using a figure of speech. Uh, there's also such thing as hyperbole. In John 21, verse 5, that if we were to write down everything Jesus had said, that even the world itself could not contain um, what, what, what is written. Well, even the world itself, of course, if we were to write about eternity, that would be true, even if it was microfish or even computer stuff, you know. But anyway, that's hyperbole, highly exaggerated statements. And we recognize this throughout, um, throughout Scripture, and we recognize that. Um, and also Proverbs, for example. You know, Proverbs are not 100% guarantee, money-back guarantees. Uh, Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Well, did Jesus give soft answers? I would say so. Sometimes he did. Uh, sometimes he wouldn't even say a word. But did that turn away wrath? No. Uh, Proverbs 18.24, he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Amen. But what about Ahab? Did he find a good, good thing when he found a wife? Jezebel? No. Uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will depart from it. Uh, generally true, but not all the time. 
Uh, what about Adam and Eve? Uh, can you get any better father than Adam and Eve? But did they still sin? Yes. Isaiah 1 verse 2, Behold, I brought, God says, Behold, I brought up children, but they have rebelled against me. And so Proverbs uh, may appear contradictory, but when we understand Proverbs are not hard, fast, money-back guarantees, but that's generally the way things work. And that is true. That generally works that way. And so the Bible contains different genres of literature, but when we try to literalize figurative things, when we say take something that's, that's given figuratively and compare it to something that's said literally, it may appear to contradict, but it really doesn't when we understand those differences in literature. And then a third point underneath this is that the Bible was not written in our culture. And sometimes people will, will like to take the culture that they are in and apply it to the Bible, and if it doesn't match, then the Bible is contradictory. Uh, but that's not the case at all. Um, one thing I want to mention with uh, uh, Mr. Underminer, and I really love that, uh, what is it, Nosenbook? Nosenbook, that is awesome, man, Nosenbook, I like that. Um, are those real characters on AP or whatever? Yeah. Bigger, okay, but, but you know, Forrest just plays the part perfectly, doesn't he? <laughs> Nosenbook. Uh, with the glasses and all that and the lab coat and stuff. But anyway, um, but, um, you know, peop, your science, you know, contemporary science says this, but the Bible says this, and so the Bible's contradictory. Well, no, uh, contemporary science changes their mind on all kinds of things, don't they? And in fact, I think Chad had some stuff about that the other night. Last night, I think it was, or last night or Wednesday, something like that, but Chad had that. Man, science is changing all the time. Just, I, I just know in my young lifetime, you know, um, I just turned 56, but I think that's young. But, uh, you know, they used to say egg, eggs were good for you, and then they said eggs are bad. You can't, can't have eggs. And now they say, I think, I think they say eggs are good for you now. I'm not sure, but, you know, um, science changes all the time, so-called science. True science never contradicts the Bible, although the Bible may not deal with true science all the time. But what it does say scientifically is accurate all the time. But, uh, you know, science, contrary with the Bible, doesn't make the Bible contradictory. Because really when you look at pseudoscience, which is really what that is, when they say it's contradictory to the Bible, it uh, doesn't contradict. Also things such as, you know, Americans, we try to be so precise on everything, but ancient cultures weren't precise as we are today. Uh, you know, estimations or estimates were common in the New Testament. You know, for example, Matthew 20, verse 3, about the third hour of the day. And I was called out for this a long time ago. Uh, I was preaching at a congregation, and every congregation, you know, when you're shaking, shaking people out, you know, they, some sisters in there who used to be uh, retired English teachers, they'll, they'll throw some constructive criticism on you, and that's good. I like that. I mean, I was a student uh, at the school, and I preached at a congregation, and I was preaching about Acts chapter 2, verse 41. I said, you know, 3,000 souls obeyed the gospel that day. Is that what the text says? And so I was called out on that, and I was shaking hands. The text doesn't say 3,000 souls. It says about 3,000 souls were added unto them. And that's true. It does say about. Uh, in the first century, they weren't concerned a lot of times with precise numbers. And even in the Old Testament, and really, I'm going to tell you this, I'll say something about it uh, in a moment, but 
the, the list in Ezra and Nehemiah, when I was a student at the school, that, that really shook me because uh, some of those lists are different. Uh, talking about, apparently talking about the same thing, but there are answers to that we'll talk about in just a moment. But um, estimates are common, about 3,000 souls. Also, as I mentioned with the birthday thing and the number thing, uh, I did not know this till last couple, three, four, five years. Maybe I was taught it but forgot about it. But, you know, zeros were not added into counting until about the six or seven hundreds A.D. Zeros were not added. Uh, and so when Jesus says three hours, zeros, yeah. In counting, in numerical counting, yeah. In other words, when Jesus said three days, you know, if I say in three days, the way we take three days, what does that mean? Well, today, today's Friday, so if I say three days from now, I'm talking about Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Monday. But if you take a zero, that's because we're counting with a zero in there. But if we say three days in Bible terms, we're talking about today's the first day. We're talking about Saturday. We're talking about Sunday. And uh, if you look at your Bibles in Luke chapter 13, verse 32, here's a good illustration of that. Luke 13, 32. Uh, Luke 13, 32. And uh, Jesus says here, let me get over here. Oh, whoo. 12, uh, 1332, notice he says, um, and he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform uh, cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. And so the first day he counted right then, that day right there, and then tomorrow would be the second day and then the third day, Okay. But that's unlike us, uh, in three days for us is going to be Monday, because we don't count today as the first day, just like, just like I was talking about with the birthdays, you know. Uh, with the birth, yeah, yeah, with the birthdays, when I turn, well, I'm going to use the one-year-old, not me, I don't want to use 56, that just don't sound good, but you know. But when a baby, when a child turns one, he's actually beginning a second year, but we say he's one. And... Uh, we call it, why do we call it the first century the first century? It should be the zero century, right? We, we do that when we talk about, you know, we're in the 21st century, but we're only in the 20s, you know, because, because of that counting thing, you know. And that always messed me up, you know, because the 19th century is really the 1800s. The 20th century is the 1900s, but anyway. And, I, and you, those of you who know me know I'm not good at math, man. Okay. Yeah. A year and a half. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Same thing. Because the numbers, the way they counted, was different. So, you know, someone says, you know, as Jonah was three days and three nights, or whatever, so shall the Son of Man be. And they'll say, well, he wasn't really, because you know, in our reckoning, Jesus was in the tomb what Friday night, all day Saturday, and raised from the dead early Sunday. Well, the way we count time, that's not three days. But the way they count time, that definitely was three days. And so there's no contradiction there with that. But that, I kind of put that under the cultural uh, type of thing. And then also in Matthew chapter 1 about marriage, you know, our marriage is not the same culture as the marriage back then. 
Remember when uh, Mary and Joseph, about the birth of Christ, you know, uh, if you look at the language here, it says here uh, in Matthew chapter 1, 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, all right, he's called her husband, but they have not come together in marriage yet. Her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so they're not come together, they're not married, but yet they're husband and wife. So the uninformed person would say, oh, that's a contradiction. But we're basing that on our culture. Uh, you know, Jewish betrothal here was like the first stage of marriage. You know, we, we, we mistaken when we compare it to our engagement. You know, in, in our culture, when we get engaged, um, you know, we're saying we're going to get married. But we can, we can throw that ring away, or if, if there even is a ring. And I remember this is pretty funny. I had reference to this, you know, when, when Jaji and I, of course, we went under the radar for a long time. Some of you know that story. Uh, and then we were going to get married, you know, we kind of announced it, but we did not follow the Chad rule of engagement, okay, <laughs> which is short, you know. Uh, I think we were engaged about 11 months or something like that, something like that. And, um, you know, there was this one sister over there at South Florida Avenue, and, you know, bless her heart. And whenever you say bless her heart to something, you know, you know something's wrong. <laughs> you know, but anyway, uh, every time I see her, she'd say, you know, it's not too late. It's not too late. You know, not too late. And I'm sure she was looking out for my best interests and all that stuff, you know. Uh, but then after we came back from the honeymoon, first time I saw that older sister, she says, it's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. <laughs> that's all right with me. But anyway, uh, but I say all that to say that our engagement is not as, as strong and binding as Jewish culture based and all that stuff at the Old Testament and all that that in order to get out of even a betrothal, you had to go through a divorce process that you read about in Deuteronomy. But again, when we try to judge what the Bible is teaching based on our culture, and because it doesn't match our culture, we call it a contradiction, that's not really a contradiction. All right, and so the Bible is perfect, but it's written under a different culture and all that. Uh, and so I want to look at some things to avoid here. We'll have two, two more points, mistakes that we must avoid, and then what we must do when we come across an apparent contradiction. All right, mistakes to avoid. We must not assume uh, that something unexplained is not explainable. Okay, that something we can't explain must not, must, cannot be explained. And um, perhaps this was pointed out by some, some previous lessons here. But, you know, at one time it was thought that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch that the historical Moses could not have written the Pentateuch. Now, there are a number of reasons why they would say that, but one of the reasons was is because people didn't know how to write back then, they would say, all right? Uh, but yet, uh, and of course, these are not recent discoveries for us. This, these were discovered way back, probably 1400s, 1500s or whatever. But we do find out that the Egyptians wrote at the time, contemporary with Moses. There were others that wrote uh, in other words, the skeptics used to say writing had never been invented yet at the time of Moses. 
Well, we know that that's just totally foolishness now. We know for sure that it was written, people were writing long, long, even long before that. But there was a time when we did not have that evidence, and so people would say that. Uh, also, um, you know, the Hittites used to be a big thing when, when uh, like Deuteronomy and Joshua and those people would mention the Hittites. You know, there was no historical evidence of Hittites for a long time. But then there were some discoveries made that showed for sure that Hittites existed. We found some of their kings' annals and things of that nature. And so there are Hittites, and there's not a question anymore. Um, and so you see you have, you'll have things like that where people say, well, there's no historical evidence of that. And, of course, I want to say here there doesn't have to be historical evidence. But when historical evidence does come up and confirms what the Bible has been teaching all along, you know, that it's kind of like the science thing, you know, so-called science, you know, pseudoscience. Uh, but these discoveries have, have proven that to be, be gone. And so there are a lot of things like that that people say are contradictory, but they're really not based upon what uh, has been discovered. And so when we think, well, I don't know the answer to that, uh, doesn't mean there's not an answer given there. And so keep that in mind. We must avoid assuming that because something is unexplained means that it cannot be explained. Secondly, we must not assume that different viewpoints or details of the same account are necessarily contradictory. And again, we understand that um, all the time. If, if, you know, five of us saw the same automobile accident and we were told that different police officers pulled us aside to give us what we saw, I'm sure there'd be a lot of things common to that, but there might be some differences of what we'd emphasize. And I know I've done that before in life where I've seen events happen. In fact, just uh, in this trip to Peru, uh, and I just happened to be right up in the front because I was the last one on the bus. There was no seat, so I'm sitting on a bucket looking out the window right there. And uh, a motorcycle's coming out, and a truck comes behind and hits the motorcycle. And I see the motorcycle. Actually, I don't even know what happened to the motorcycle. I focused on the guy. And so he comes flying off, and his helmet comes off. He didn't have it strapped on. He bounces a few times, skids right into a curb. You know, I see all that right before me. Well, some other people saw it, and they described what they saw. It wasn't exactly what I saw, but they emphasized different things. Another guy emphasized the motorcycle, you know, what saw the motorcycle going, because from where uh, she was sitting, she couldn't see the guy coming off it. But anyway, we stopped and went out, and, uh, and I was pretty impressed. It took about three or four minutes before authorities arrived. I thought that was pretty good for that, that type of situation. But anyway, um, you see differently. Well, you know, in G Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, Matthew 16, 18, in Mark's account, uh, Jesus just says, you are the Christ, uh, Mark 8, 29. In Luke 9, 20, uh, Peter just says, the Christ of God. Well, are those contradictory? Uh, no, they're not. Uh, they're just emphasizing certain things. I mean, the long version, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Mark, you are the Christ. He's just emphasizing that. Um, and then Luke, the Christ of God. But both Mark and Luke contain what Matthew contains, just not everything. But that's not their, their purpose. Just like the, the, the accident, you know, what I saw... Emphasize the guy. Um, let's see, he just had a gash on his head. That was about it. Uh, but the other account just talked about the motorcycle. 
There may be someone else there that saw other parts of that, but, you know, again, it's not contradictory, even though it's not the same. All right? Also, we must not assume that uh, different accounts are contradictory. Different accounts are contradictory. Matthew 28, verse 5, Matthew's account has one angel talking to the women who came to the tomb early in the morning. But yet, John 20, verse 12, says there were two angels uh, that talked to the women who came early in the tomb. Well, does that necessarily contradict? Uh, no. Uh, now, if Matthew didn't say there was only one, he just said one. All right? There's a difference. And uh, in logic, uh, students usually have trouble with this, but why don't we just say it in, in simple terms here, that whenever there's two, there's what? There's always one. If there's two, there's always one. And in logic, uh, you know, all Christians are saved one statement. And some Christians are saved is another statement. Uh, those do not contradict. Because some is included in the all. Okay? Uh, but it might seem like they contradict, but they don't. Uh, they complement one another. Okay? Because um, some is included in all. Now, if I only said only some, now if I were to put only some Christians are saved, that makes a difference. But if I have a whole circle of Christians and I say all these are saved, and I take a, another circle of some Christians, well, they're still in that saved, they're still there. And so in logic, that's still true. Okay? And that's the same here. Because one says two and one says one, though, does not mean it's a contradiction. Alright, also, uh, in Matthew 27, 5, it says that Judas hanged himself. But in Acts 1, 18, it says Judas fell headlong and burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. New King James. Alright, well, do those contradict? Now, I know Bob and I can't get that movie that we watch and John all the time. Can't get that out of our head. Well, you might see it too. The Passion of Christ. I don't know where they got that from. Um, you know, the kids nagging, I can see that, of course, but you know, you know the kids nagging. But, but anyway, but uh, Judas hanged himself, Judas fell headlong. Does that have to contradict? No. Um, both those things could have happened, did happen. Uh, you know, if he was hung, hung himself off a cliff or whatever, and he hung himself and then his, you know, swung and hit, hit, hit a rock or whatever. Or maybe he hung himself and after his next snap he broke the rope or whatever, fell down or whatever, I don't know. Uh, but they don't contradict. They can both be true at the same time, in other words. He hung himself and he fell headlong and his guts opened, you know, side busted open, his guts came out, whatever. Whatever translation you have. Alright? And so uh, those things are not contradictory just because it's a different, if they say something different, or it's because something doesn't include all that another does. They do not contradict, okay? And, uh, and so what must we do when we come across an apparent contradiction? All right, well, the first thing is study the context. That's the main thing I can say. Context, context, context. Uh, we say this a lot uh, in hermeneutics, uh, just even in Bible study. What does the context say? And so don't just look at one verse, but go back up and read the whole context. Uh, and see what that says. Study that context. Uh, also, we must uh, interpret difficult passages 
by the plain passages. In other words, this comes in when we talk about maybe parts of Daniel or Ezekiel or the book of Revelation or some other things. And I'm sure you've heard Bob and, and others say it and hear from this pulpit. We may not know exactly what it says, what it means, but we can know for sure based upon clear passages what it's not saying. Okay? It's not saying. And uh, we must study that out uh, as well. Um, and another, another area, as you'll read this in denominational sources too, that I'm going to talk about, but you know, James contradicts. Uh, Paul in Romans 4 and 5, for example, where Paul says that salvation is not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by faith are you saved, or by grace are you saved through faith, uh, not of yourselves, it is not, not of works, etc. Well, a denomination will say that's a contradiction, and so we, we know that James cannot mean works, and so we either got to say James is the right, strong epistle, or, or they got to do something. But really, there's no contradiction there at all. When we realize that the works that, that Ephesians is talking about, he's talking about works of human boasting, Titus 3, 5, works of human boasting, works of the law don't save us, Galatians 3, 14, and 16, uh, but it's the works of, of, and James is talking about works of faith, uh, so those are completely in harmony with one another. There is no contradiction when we study the context of those passages uh, there. All right, now I mentioned the numbers uh, in uh, the numbers in Ezra's list. Some of those are different than the numbers in uh, Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And of course, uh, some of that could be scribal error. Uh, some of that is uh, likely additional people that left. You know, the people that left the land of captivity and came to Jerusalem. Uh, could have been some of them left and then picked up some along the way as they heard that they were going to return. And so there are a number of factors that can be involved in there that uh, would make that not a contradiction. And again, if it's even possible that some of these other things could be true, then there is not a definite contradiction. Now again, we, we recognize that in every area of life, it seems like, except for when it comes to um, the Bible. For some reason, we I know uh, us from here, when I talk about us, for some reason people think that that can't be the case when it comes to the Bible. Uh, that is the case uh, when we look at all the alternatives, when we look at all the uh, options for what the, these two verses could, or these two things that seem like a contradiction, what are the options as to the way they could be in harmony? And uh, when we look at that and consider all those things, there are absolutely no contradictions in the Bible, that is, in the original. Uh, text of the Bible. Alright? Uh, now some translations, yeah, translations, uh, you can see the contradiction of translations are what humans put those words and not what God Alright, uh, we've got a couple minutes here. Any questions or comments uh, on this question? Um, now there are some sources available. Um, George Dehoff has a book 
is uh, um, Guy's Learn How, I think it's called, Guy's Learn How. Yeah, Norman Guy's, where you'll see his name a lot in nomination writings. It seems like almost everybody wants to pair up again. It was co-written by Guy's or whatever. But anyway, it's called When Critics Ask. When Critics Ask. Wasn't there a Brotherhood lectureship on that too? Yeah, there is. Uh, difficult text. There's one called Difficult Text in the Old Testament, which, by the way, um, no, I think it's, uh, but there's one called Difficult Text in the Old Testament, Difficult Text in the New Testament, and it seems like it's a uh, brown trail. Uh, Fort Worth Lectures, and they're called Fort Worth Lectures. It seems like that's the lectureship book. And there may be some more recent ones on that, but this one I'm talking about by guys that are how. Of course, you got to watch the denominational junk in there as far as original sin and stuff like that. But he goes through every book, Genesis through Revelation, and picks out, shows the, uh, tells you the, the statement, tells you why people think it's contradictory, and he gives you the answer for it. And, um, and it's pretty good if you're, you know, you got to separate the meat from the bones. Right but there are some other good ones. Uh, Dehoff is the only one I know offhand, but yeah, there are some lectureship books that kind of dealt with that. Uh, the only meditation lectureship books on that is they don't deal with Genesis and Revelation, they just deal with some of the major, major ones, which is all right. All right, uh, any other questions or comments on this? Um, and it is good stuff. I'd be able to answer those. Um, get them to do personal work to really see this. And there are a lot of people that have a lot of strange ideas about the Bible. They aren't true, but it's like, where did they get these ideas? But they are out there. All right, I appreciate your attention. I was told about quarter after, so it's 17 after.